Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom that is contained within it to meet us in all seasons of life. Would you help me now to rightly divide that word? Would we see the beautiful simplicity of your solution to the greatest problem of all? Oh, Lord Jesus, would you feed us by your word and leave us in awe of you, our King. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. Well, there's no doubt spring has been here for a while, right? The grass has been growing. The flowers have been blooming. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there has been the arrival of the Florida state bird. I'm referring, of course, to the mosquito. Oh, none of us love the bloodsuckers, do we? I mean, what was God thinking when he made mosquitoes? When we get to heaven, that'll be something I want to ask him. You know the, the swatting and the itching and all the annoyance that goes with, with them. But do you know there's a place other than heaven where there are no mosquitoes? Disney World. If you have been to Disney World, it is true, very likely, that you have not had to do any swatting. You probably have not needed bug spray. You probably have not had that annoying tickle behind your ear. The land of Mickey is strangely free of these pests. Why is this? Well, it's a, even more amazing when you consider where Disney World is. It was built in swampland right outside Orlando, Florida in a perfect breeding ground for mosquitoes. How is it that they solved this tough problem? Well, it turns out Walt Disney was a very smart man. He realized this problem ahead of time, so he went out and sought a man named Joe Potter. He had experience doing engineering as a part of the Panama Canal project. Mosquitoes were quite a problem, and so he learned a lot about how to avoid these annoying bloodsuckers. It turns out standing water is the enemy. That's where they lay their eggs. If you can eliminate the standing water, you can eliminate the mosquitoes. So he came up with a very elegant, simple, sharp conclusion. He came up with a plan to build everything in Disney World at a slight angle. All the park benches, all the streets, yes, even the princess castle. Every surface has a slight grade to it, which means the water rolls right off. And there's nowhere for the mosquitoes to lay their eggs. That's a simple solution for a tough problem, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I love it when I come across a simple solution for a tough problem. When there's something that's just bugging me, something that I just have to do around the house, and my mind has that sharpness every once in a while and come up with just the right solution. There's something extra satisfying about it. Our passage this morning is a famous one. It finds Solomon in a very sticky situation and in need of an elegant, simple, even sharp solution to his problem. Now, maybe you remember the context of how we got here in the book of 1 Kings. Last week we saw King Solomon, God's appointed king, asking God for the thing he needs most. Wisdom to rule God's people. God was pleased to give him this wisdom because it was the exact thing he needed to carry out the very task God had given him. 
With this God-appointed wisdom, though, Solomon is entering the proving grounds. Will this wisdom for God live up to the hype? Will he actually be able to give God's people justice as their king? His proving ground comes in verses 16 through 22, the first of two scenes we see. The sticky situation, Solomon's sticky situation. One of my favorite British-isms is the saying, that's a sticky wicket. It's a way of saying that something is particularly difficult, a difficult situation. It comes from a, a cricket field. It turns out when the field is wet, that it's very unpredictable how the ball will bounce. So a British person will often say, that's a sticky wicket, to say that's a difficult situation. Well, Solomon finds himself in a particularly sticky wicket, one that would have had the TMZ court reporters buzzing. In verse 16, we see two prostitutes come into the court of the king to stand before him. Now you need to understand, back in those days, the king was the supreme court of the land. He was the final court of appeals. So this scandalous case had made its way up through the lower courts before it arrived in King Solomon's throne room. Two prostitutes come with a thorny problem. We get the scoop on those details in verses 17 through 22. Two prostitutes living in a brothel by themselves. There's nobody bothering them for a while because it turns out they're both in the late stages of pregnancy. They give birth just three days apart. The arrival of the bundles of joy undoubtedly made them excited. However, there was a, a horrible turn of events. One of the women accidentally smothers the baby in her sleep. Now, as horrible as that is, as much as our heart goes out to her, what she does next is frankly conniving and evil. She goes and takes her dead baby and goes to her brothel housemate and switches her dead baby for the live baby and goes back to sleep, thinking her brothel housemate will be none the wiser. Uh, unfortunately for her, mothers pay careful attention to even the fine details of their newborn babies. When the mother wakes up, she looked at her baby and realized, this is not my child. There has been a switcheroo that has occurred. She realizes the baby napping and her maternal instincts kick in. She knows this is a case that demands the king's justice. Now, as any good dramatic sort of court case would go, you, you see that they end up having conflicting testimony there in verses 21 and 22. Each of them accuses the other of lying and claims that the living baby is in fact theirs. What in the world are you to do with such a dilemma? What will King Solomon do? Well, a sticky situation like this requires a sharp solution. That's what we three see in verses 23 through 28. We see Solomon's sharp solution. He begins by reiterating the problem in verse 23. He uh, recounts the she said, she said conflicting testimony of the matter. Now realize that this is a, a real problem to have two people with witness, uh, witness accounts that 
do not match up because there's no external corroboration for Solomon to work on. The very law of Moses gave the, the instruction that for something to be established legally, you needed two or three witnesses. That's a, a high bar to establish something to, to make sure that false witness doesn't win the day. But in this case, Solomon has no one else to call. They were by themselves, and the only two witnesses disagree with each other. That's one problem. There's another problem here. These two women undoubtedly are of compromised character. Again, the law of Moses, if you look through Leviticus, you'll see there are prohibitions against their very line of work. Prostitution was something forbidden. These women come and they have scandal written all over themselves. Solomon later in his own writings in Proverbs, he would warn young men about such women to avoid going even near their house. You, you know, Solomon would have been easily excused for just deciding to avoid this whole hornet's nest altogether. I mean, who's to say what uh, women like these would, who's to say what the truth of, their, uh, of the matter would be? Uh, it's so hard to tell when people's character is compromised and there's no other witnesses on the outside of the situation. Surely the palace uh, attendants would have understood if, if Solomon had just sent the women on their way without a word. But instead of evading, Solomon presses in to execute judgment. He comes up with a brilliant solution, which we see in verses 24 through 27. First, he calls for a sword. Now, at this point in Solomon's career, he has been established as someone that is willing to deal with his enemies even by way of the sword. He's been willing to shed blood when it was necessary. So you can imagine the collective palace pulse rate rising a little as he calls for a sword. What's he going to do? Is he just going to kill both these women in this moment? Well, there, that wonder probably turns to horror as he says what he intends to do in verse 25. Divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. He says you should bisect the baby, cut it right down the middle and give one half to one woman and one half to the other. The horror of the thought is, is he just a monster? That does make a sort of horrible sense. It is equitable. They both get the same amount of baby. And yet we know morally this would be an unjust end to this case. But it turns out that this is all a ruse. A ruse designed to reveal the true mother. In 26 through 27, we see that his plan works to perfection. One of the mothers, the, the true mother, it said that she yearned, her heart yearned for her son. So much so that she pleads to Solomon. She says, please don't do this. Don't kill the baby. Give it to the other woman if you have to. Just make sure the, the baby does not die. There's a, a stark contrast between that mother and the second mother, who seems quite content for the scales to be even. She says, I'll take my half of the baby. Go ahead and, and do what you said. 
Solomon very cleverly uses the human instinct of maternal love to reveal the identity of the true mother. He arrives at truth in verse 27. We see he is able to give justice. He gives the baby to the true mother, the one whose love had motivated her even to give the baby away so it might live. Now the result of all this is in verse 28 and it's the purpose of this whole passage. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. God's king sitting on his throne of his kingdom has God's wisdom to give his people justice. Oh, what a good thing it is. This is undoubtedly a very famous passage in the Bible, dividing the baby Even for those who don't know much about the Bible, they know of this story. But what are we to take from this story? What difference does it make for the way that we live in this world? Allow me to give you three applications. First, seek wisdom from the source. Seek wisdom from the source, God himself. Remember, this story comes as a part of the larger unit, which we saw last week. Solomon's request for wisdom to rule and God imparting him with a special gift of divine wisdom. Solomon understands that true wisdom only comes from one place, from God. Later, he would write in Proverbs 9, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is a basic truth of the world that so many have lost uh, lost sight of in this life, this time we live. It's ignored so readily today that God is the source of all wisdom, and that only he can grant it. This week, we mourned the passing of great philosopher and teacher, Ravi Zacharias. Uh, I'm sure like like me, many of you have benefited greatly from his teachings over the years. Just an incredible mind with an incredible amount of wisdom that the Lord had granted to him for his ministry to bring the gospel before intellectuals and academics and to do so in just such a powerful way. One of Ravi's favorite illustrations to give was of Muhammad Ali on an airplane. Ali was packed in like everyone else getting ready for takeoff. When the uh, flight attendant came by and realized that he did not have his seatbelt on, she asked him very kindly, hey, uh, sir, would you please put on the seatbelt? To which Ali quipped right back, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Quick on her feet. The flight attendant responded back, Superman don't need no plane, neither. Robbie loved to tell that story because it showed the arrogance of the human heart. How we can assume that we ourselves are invincible. We don't need anyone's help. That we are Superman, even in the intellectual realm. And 
Ravi loved to point out how foolish this is. If wisdom comes from God, that means we must humbly seek it from him. In an article on the subject, he wrote this. Speaking of Solomon, from this same king, we are told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, reverence for God is where wisdom starts. Recognition that there is a giver of knowledge and wisdom. On days when we are tempted by thoughts of invincibility, might we remember that falsely posing as a superman will only ensure a crash landing. In places where we are overwhelmed by turbulent forces and despairing instability, might we recall that humbly seeking wisdom and following it to its source will lift us to glorious heights. The world will miss Ravi Zacharias, but we can benefit from the wisdom that he had found so much himself. Would we follow, we follow wisdom back to its source and seek it from God himself? Maybe you're listening to the sermon this morning and you're someone that fancies yourself as a seeker of wisdom. Maybe you're considering Christianity alongside other worldviews and philosophies and religions. I wonder, have you ever taken the time to read the Bible? We Christians believe that this is God's book. If that's true, don't you think reading God's book might be worth your time if you are truly seeking after wisdom? The Bible testifies about itself that it is able to give you wisdom, specifically the most important type of wisdom of all, the wisdom that will make you able to experience salvation. One passage of the Bible says just that, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. But as for you, continue to what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that is the, the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Friend, if you have never for yourself read the Bible and considered its claims and considering what it says about God and how he's revealed himself in the man Jesus Christ, then friend, you have not sought the very source of wisdom. Would you consider doing so today? Now, if you don't know how to do that, I, I, let me just recommend you, you find a Christian friend and ask them, how can I read the Bible? Now, if you don't have any Christian friends, please reach out to us here at uh, College Park Castleton. Uh, we would love to help you begin your journey of reading the book that God gave us to lead us back to the source of all wisdom, God himself. Now, to those of us that are believers, let's realize that if the Bible indeed does contain this wisdom from God, then we need to be diligent in our study of it. I was given advice as a young believer, advice that has been so helpful. The advice was to read the book of Proverbs three times each year. Read the book of Proverbs three times every year you live. I was told it would help me so much in my walk with Christ and, and frankly just help me to avoid a lot of mistakes in life. Particularly if you are younger. I, I wonder if you are 
availing yourself of the wisdom that God gave specifically designed for someone in your stage of life. You know, you hear people talk about the difficulty of adulting, of figuring out how to pay bills and make plans and advance in your career and start a family, all all the adult matters of life. Did you know that God spoke to so many of these matters thousands of years ago? If you just took the time to read the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, you would find incredible advice, wisdom to help you navigate these difficult things. It it speaks into issues of work ethic, how to be an efficient, effective, and prosperous worker, to planning, how to make long-range plans and actually carry them out, to finances, how do you use your money well, to relationships, how do you deal with people that love you, How do you deal with people that don't love you? To temptation, how to avoid the pitfalls that will lead you into utter ruin morally in your life. To self-control, its value and how to practically live, uh, live it out. It even gives you advice for how to keep God first in your heart. If you're young, let me challenge you. Avail yourself of the sections of the Bible designed for people in their youth to learn this aspect of God's wisdom, how to live well in this world. You'll save yourself so many sorrows if you just learn these lessons now. Now to all of us as believers, let's realize that we too need to be very careful to be taking wisdom from God and not from other sources. I, I, as a pastor, find myself increasingly worried with the wisdom intake of so many Christians. There's a really helpful graphic put together by a guy named Brett McCracken. He calls it his, the wisdom intake pyramid. It should be visible to you right now. It uses that idea of the food pyramid, of which foods you should make up the most of your diet to be healthy, to make an analogy to our sources of consumption that lead to the way we think and the way our hearts operate, our wisdom. I think we need to ask ourselves the question, is our wisdom intake a healthy one? Or is our consumption the way it needs to be? Do you notice how the most important, the staple at the bottom there, that is the very word of God? That should be the bulk of our wisdom intake. You know, the complete opposite end of the spectrum, the very tip top of the pyramid, the smallest amount, the junk food, well, that's social media. I fear that far too many believers have this pyramid inverted. Social media takes up far more of our time and energy than even our time in the very word of God. Would we be reminded if God is the source of all wisdom, then we need to be diligent about sitting at his feet. And what better way to do that than paying close attention to his very word. Now, there's a lot more good in that uh, graphic. I invite you to look it up throughout the week. Um, uh, Again, the Wisdom Intake pyramid, Pyramid by Brett McCracken. Second line of application. We need to highly value truth. We need to highly value truth. Now, King Solomon did not take the easy road here. It wasn't immediately obvious the facts of this case, and yet he worked 
hard, he thought hard, even through difficulty to come up with his sharp solution. Truth is worth seeking out. It's worth paying a high price for. Proverbs 23, 23 tells us as much. It says, buy truth and do not sell it. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Truth is something that is worth paying a price for. It is to be so highly valued that no matter what we are offered, we will not give it up. I'm afraid many Christians have lost sight of the importance of truth. Even if we wouldn't like to admit it, the way we act around certain topics shows that we have not been diligent as being seekers of truth. One way you can see this come out is the way Christians so often are drawn toward conspiracy theories. Now, I speak from experience here. My first exposure to Christianity came through uh, my family in the Seventh-day Adventist church. There are many genuine believers in the Adventist church, and yet it's not really being judgmental. It's just being honest to say that there is a tendency towards conspiratorial thinking within Seventh-day Adventism. It's kind of baked into the cake from its roots the way it was started. I remember sitting down one, one uh, evening with a friend in a Denny's. This is years after I, we had left the Adventist church. At this point, I was already in seminary, serving in a Southern Baptist church. And my friend, with all earnestness, across the table looked at me and said, I, I just need to let you know that you are a Jesuit operative under the control of the Pope in Rome. Now, I was a little shocked. Uh, I hadn't seen many memos from the Pope up till that point, still haven't. Um, and Baptist, Southern Baptists are not exactly known for loving centralized anything. Um, but no matter what questions I asked and no matter what counter evidence I provided, my friend would not be shaken. This was a conviction. I was a Jesuit operative. He would not move off of it. Realize, friends, there's a pattern at play in conspiracy thinking, and it has been on full display during this pandemic, especially on social media. The pattern goes something like this. There is a lack of information on a topic, ambiguity, questions are asked. Theories are put forward, sometimes plausible, sometimes less so. Those theories, at some point or the other, start to become opinions, even strong opinions people hold. Eventually, those opinions are held so strongly they become convictions, and then they're thought of as fact. Facts so indisputable that no, alt, no uh, counter evidence will be even considered. Now, friends, we, we need to be clear God is not honored by any sort of falsehood, even when it's sincerely held falsehood. And that means we need to be very careful in the way we think, and particularly in putting forward our thoughts, if those thoughts might turn out to be false. Now, it's not to say that theories put forward are always wrong. I mean, quite the opposite. A lot of times, theories turn out to be true, but... Sometimes it's difficult to tell, and sometimes it just takes time and evidence before you can tell the difference between uh, a theory that checks out and one that is way off base. 
So uh, what I'm appealing for to you this morning is for us to each think carefully before we post, particularly since social media makes up more of our lives now than otherwise, to be really careful what we post. And uh, let me give you a set of questions you can ask yourself before you post on a particular topic. First question, do I really know what I'm about to post is true? Not just do I have feelings strongly that it might be true. Do I know for a fact it is true? Do I know it's true so much so that I'd be willing to stake my reputation on it? How would I know if I was wrong? What would I look for? What sort of counter evidence would I need to convince me that I'm wrong about this thing? How would I undo the damage if I make this post and later it turns out I was wrong? Is there any way to bring this back if it turns out I was mistaken? If I'm wrong, would I be rightly guilty of slander? Am I impugning someone's character in a way that if it turns out I'm wrong, I'm actually committing the sin of slander? Do I even need to say anything right now? Could it wait? Could someone else more qualified than me speak into this? How will me posting this thing, how will it impact my gospel witness? Will it help or will it hurt my ability to reach my neighbors for Christ? Am I spending more time on this thing I'm about to post about than I am on the gospel of Jesus? Brothers and sisters, truth is worth the price we pay to get it. And there's nothing that's worth losing it over. Let's do the hard work, even when it's difficult and unclear. Let's make every effort to make sure we are seeking truth because we follow the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Third line of application. Be thankful for just mercy. Be thankful for just mercy. In this narrative, we see that justice is hard to achieve, and that makes us all the more thankful for when it is achieved. Solomon required God-given wisdom and a brilliant solution in order to navigate this thorny dilemma. Realize how difficult it is to bring justice in a world filled with sin and sinners. You know, this is Memorial Day weekend, a, a time where we remember those who gave their lives in defense of our country and in the pursuit of justice. It's right for us to be thankful for those who made that sacrifice and to be thankful for what it is they have done. It is a God-given good in our lives that evil is restrained and good is commended. And military service is one of the ways that occurs. If, if someone in your family gave their life in this way, please hear, we, we are grateful for your family's sacrifice and we honor what it is that they did whenever it was and they gave their life. It's not always easy to bring justice in this world, and yet it is worth fighting for. The world is better off without the Paul Potts, Adolf Hitlers, without the Mussolinis of the world. And so we should, we're right to honor those who fight 
for justice, even in the armed forces. If we remember how difficult it is to achieve justice, that certainly means that we should be people that pray for those entrusted with the authority to bring about justice in our own communities. Brothers and sisters, let's pray for judges. Let's pray for their juries. Pray for your police officers, your elected officials, those who are charged by God with this role of bringing justice to, frankly, difficult situations. As we have ability, of course, we should work toward justice. We should even correct those when they go astray in their role of bringing justice. But I think we also need to pause and have gratitude for when we see justice and just how difficult it is to achieve. Solomon's sharp solution doesn't just have justice for us to appreciate, though. It also has mercy. Did, did you notice that? You know, these women that came to him, they had compromised character. They themselves were lawbreakers. Solomon could have either just not heard their case, or he could have rightfully punished them for their crimes as prostitutes. And yet he didn't do so. We see an example here of God's king dispensing justice even as he dispenses mercy. And I hope you can't help but see echoes to the very greatest solution of all time. The place where justice and mercy intermingle the very cross of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 23 through 24 says this. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, God dealt with the thorniest of all problems, the stickiest of all situations. He dealt with it with a simple, elegant, sharp solution by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross. There Jesus was pierced in his side so justice would be done, giving his life as a sacrifice. There guilty sinners received mercy from the king as his blood brought, bought forgiveness, redemption, and adoption into God's family. And brothers and sisters, there is where the very wisdom of God is most clearly seen, at the cross of Jesus. We too should be in awe of God's king, sitting on his throne, bringing justice to his kingdom, to a whole kingdom full of recipients of his divine mercy. What wisdom, what justice, what mercy we have in King Jesus. Would you let your heart be encouraged by that again this morning, brothers and sisters? Would you remember what a good king you have? Would you remember the wisdom of God that he possesses? Would you remember the justice he brought and the mercy you have found? This was beautifully captured by a poem by Frederick Faber. Listen to a few of the stanzas. There's a wideness in God's mercy, 
like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. There's welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There is mercy with the Savior. There is healing in his blood. How good it is to be subjects of King Jesus. The very wisdom of God to rule his people, to bring them justice and mercy. Would we let our hearts be in awe of him again this morning? Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, you are a good king. We thank you for your rightly administered justice. We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross so that we might find mercy. Oh, Jesus, would you help us to live in light of your rulership over our lives? Would you strengthen us even this week to be those who live by your wisdom, that seek after truth in a way that honors you, that find our hearts filled with gratitude for the many blessings you give us, even, yes, the justice we see in this world. Oh, Jesus, would you let us live up to the incredible calling of being citizens of your eternal kingdom, citizens of heaven itself. Grant us the grace, grant us the wisdom, grant us the power to live faithfully in this week ahead. And will we bring you much glory as we do so. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.